0: Welcome to Talk The Line, I'm Jen Long and every week I chat to an artist or musician about their deepest passions, interests, just what makes up their life. Sometimes it's a pretty informative chat, other times the conversation gets a little more narrative driven. This is a podcast from The Line of Best Fit, the UK's biggest independent website for new music discovery. Check us out at thelineofbestfit.com and you can follow us on Twitter at TalkTheLine and me at Jen Long. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. This week, I'm talking to the inimitable Amanda Palmer. Amanda Palmer is one of modern music's most divisive figures. Born in New York and raised in Lexington, Massachusetts, her first experiments in performance began with street theatre. She spent eight years as one half of the Dresden Dolls before releasing her first solo album in 2008, and this year she worked on I Can Spin a Rainbow, a collaborative record with Edward Caspel from experimental band The Legendary Pink Dots. Amanda is married to writer Neil Gaiman, and the couple became parents in September of 2015. She doesn't shy away from talking about the difficult things in her life, something that her interviewers often find hard to keep up with. This was the starting point for our conversation. And I should also say, please don't knee-jerk out of this after the first five to ten minutes. I mean, that is honestly how I felt doing this interview at the start, but it turns into something really insightful, revealing and quite touching, in my opinion, so please stick with it. You join Amanda and I deciding the theme of this podcast.
1: There are things about, like, you know, sex and bodies and, you know, vaginas and breastfeeding and uh, my open marriage and, like, you know, the dirty, creepy sides of feminism and like stuff that people generally don't like to talk about because yeah. it's sticky and uncomfortable.
0: Well, so the things that people don't like to talk about could it's be what well. we talk about.
1: Well, if you feel like you can lead that interview, I will go wherever you 100%. want. 100%. Well, but but uh, but you're pretty good. <laughs> so you, you hope. You don't know me. So maybe we should just start from scratch and see where we can get to because I will happily, non-resistantly, talk about anything. Okay. And you just need to be very like not British and just chuck <laughs> it all and go and okay. go mm-hmm. and especially especially nowadays like uh under the giant rubric of feminism or mm-hmm. all of that because I am like I mean not all of my opinions were popular I noticed so but I'm very happy to talk honestly and openly about them because I have them. So what, what, I mean, what,
0: what's the kind of like, what, 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 what's the sort of thing that haunts you? The thing that you've said that haunts you more than anything else that was not popular?
1: Oh my God. The thing that haunts me. Well, see, I don't, I don't really have a many or even any regrets. Um, I don't have that moment in my career or that moment in that interview where I still wake up kicking myself going, ah, shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have taken that stance. Um, Mostly I look back and I, and I still can't believe sometimes how misunderstood I was by so many people. And then in certain other cases. I Still can't believe and like right now. There's like a macro to the micro because of what's happening in America with Donald Trump but I I sometimes like feel like I I took a curve in My career or with something I said or some stance that I took and I looked around me and couldn't believe that my ideals and my opinion or stance on something was not the norm right which and and I have one really big one of those which was the um, which was the kind of kerfuffle that I got myself into in 2013 when the Boston bombing happened
0: right well I'm not familiar with what you
1: said so I well it wasn't even so much what I said it was what I did and then what I said okay so the Boston bombing happened blocks from my house it was all really terrible you you could imagine yeah same sort of stuff is happening in London right now Uh, and a couple days after the bombing I dashed off a kind of stream of consciousness poem called poem for Jahar who was the the kid who was manhunted the 19 year old I remember this now and it wasn't that it was a great poem it was kind of one of those like you know bullshitty stream of consciousness blogs that I just posted up because I because that's the way I blogged I just put out what it was in my head. And that wasn't the problem. The problem was that I titled it Poem for Jahar and then followed up the poem with a call for empathy and compassion for the kids who did the bombing, which I would still absolutely stand by. The same way I would absolutely stand by feeling empathy and compassion for these crazy motherfuckers who drove a truck into a bunch of people on London Bridge and the insane people who carried out the Manchester bombing because I just deeply believe that that's the only way we're gonna get anywhere. I'm not saying don't put these guys in jail. I'm not saying don't bring these guys to justice. Of course we have to do that. But if we can't put ourselves in the shoes of someone else and dare to imagine what they feel like, we're lost. But I think
0: that's the problem is that that I couldn't put myself in the shoes of someone who would do something like that. It just, you just, I just couldn't even imagine how it would go through someone's head that they would be able to kill so many innocent children and women
1: and teenagers. It, and that's, it feels impossible. It is impossible. But that's what empathy is. is well, I mean, I can understand empathy also, for families, but
0: well, right, empathy but for the people who actually committed. such a, 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 a cowardly atrocity as well right something like the manchester bombing it's the hardest thing to do it's oh, I, I, I can't i genuinely can't do it right i mean i mean do you mean the kind of but like even because though we they... can't
1: even though we can't succeed even though we might not be able to find our way there i still believe that it's the attempt to do so that's going to get us out of the general mess okay because we are in a so fucking to, mess is it
0: more to understand <laughs> the reasons why this happens and because I, I, right after the um, the Manchester bombing um, it was in the middle of the general election here and Jeremy Corbyn came out by saying we shouldn't meddle in foreign affairs so much, this is what happens and he got a lot of stick for that and I feel that that was maybe a more diplomatic way of saying what you're saying
1: Well, I mean I feel like on the one side there's politics there's war, there's terrorism, there's death there's the insanity of the intermingling and the interconnected mess of international, global politics, religions, and all of that stuff that you can stick in one bucket. Right. And then there's a bunch of human beings doing a bunch of crazy things. And I feel like there is a way to separate looking at a human being who has gone down whatever path of extremism or insanity or uh, um, indoctrination uh, and, and no matter what the politics are, the religion are, the crazy cult is, all of those trappings, behind all of that shit, there's still a human being. And I think that if we're not able to take a moment to remind ourselves that behind all of that crazy shit is still a human being worthy of compassion. Even if we put them in jail, even if we punish them, even if our, our desire and our political motives are to de indoctrinate them or whatever, you always have to start at the bottom. And this is the crazy thing right now that is driving me batshit about Teresa May saying, we need to uh relook at human rights and what they are yeah well n- it's the n- that's same not- conversation human rights can't be selective compassion can't be selective well the, but there's
0: the, the idea of everyone underneath being a human being but with the, being a human being it is it's it's humanity is what makes us it's having you know having a soul and having compassion but people who commit those sort of crimes. It feels like they lack that. It almost feels like they're soulless, which sort of makes in in your, in your mind makes it, makes it easier to see them as, as a monster makes it easier to demonize them. Right. And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but I can't feel empathy for someone who can do
1: something like that. And I feel like our job as righteous human beings is in the face of that impossible task to still try to do it.
0: But I mean, how, how do you contextualize it with that they had a family? Like, how can you, can you actually get to that point where you feel you feel empathy for someone who's committed something so devastating as saying off a
1: bomb at a pop concert, I will which is t- supposed
0: to be a safe space. It's full of young people, teenagers. Right,
1: and it's horrific. It's atrocious. It's, it's completely wrong. Yeah. It's everything bad. One thing that does make it A little easier I have to say is having a baby okay because having a baby does this thing to your head where you walk around and you just see a bunch of grown babies (laughs) seriously like you you look at all of these self serious politicians you look at Donald Trump you look at Theresa May and you know for a fucking fact that they were once one foot long And completely vulnerable and my midwife uh, said something really incredible she's this you know beautiful super hippie midwife from Tennessee who's in her 70s and she's probably delivered 10,000 babies in her lifetime of all shapes sizes and colors and people of all backgrounds and she said if If all men had to witness the act of uh, childbirth and children being delivered into the world, there would be no war. (laughs) (laughs) And there, I mean, there's there's kind of something to that, which is you can, you know, you can find it really difficult. And I'm not saying that it isn't difficult. It's Mm. really hard. But there's there's always a way in and i i don't think i would be arguing for this point of view so hard if what we were doing was working right okay but it's not fucking working we're becoming more segregated more isolated more polarized angrier and i think part of it has to do with this inability to have compassion for the worst people Because if you're selectively compassionate, if you're selectively empathetic, it's sort of like accepting censorship, but only for these bad things and only for these people and only the stuff we don't like. It's a kind of all or nothing, take it or leave it.
0: It's kind of the old old idea of fighting hate with love.
1: Pretty much.
0: Kind of fighting that polarizing nature with a little empathy.
1: Right. And I mean, part of the problem with this is you need to explain to a right-wing... Crazy that having empathy, having compassion and fighting hate with love doesn't mean don't put these fucking people in jail, don't punish them for what they've done, don't have common sense. But while doing that, recognize the human being, recognize their human rights, recognize, recognize how much fucking pain this person must be in to do something that un-understandable, like you were saying. How much pain would you have to be in to take a bomb into a concert hall filled with kids and know what you were doing and still do it? Do like, you think it's pain, or do you, think, of pain. Do you think,
0: it's, think it's heroism?
1: Surely, I think it's thinking th-
0: that you're—it's selfish. It's thinking that you're going to go, you're going to be a—you're a martyr, and you're going to go to a better place, and you're going to have this heavenly existence. Is, is that not not what?
1: but the I th- idea is that if you you know but i think anyone who's that nuts who has that i that insane narcissistic idea of heroism at the hands of so much suffering of other people is fundamentally coming from a place of extreme pain woundedness lack whatever it all comes from a dark place and- no one comes out of the light going i know what i'm going to do i'm going to blow yeah. a bunch of fuckers up and be a hero no one, no one comes out of the and light into that. do you think that.
0: part of that kind of comes from the way that we are sort of almost turning the, these events into narratives, into stories that we can understand really easily, where there's the bad guys and there's the good guys, and splitting people in that way.
1: Yeah, I think that's what you're seeing happening all over the place. Mm. And, you know, you're like you said, it, it's so hard to understand why someone would do something unspeakably violent especially on a mass level but that same inability that we have to wrap our heads around it and our inability to get it is is the same dark door that leads us into just blanket demonization of those people and then those people that look like those people and then all of them
0: and then those people don't have human rights anymore
1: right so you know it's a slippery slope and i would you know people could call me crazy but i would still advocate for always trying to see the whole human being as as our ticket out of this particular insanity you know and and i'm not you know i'm not like a crazy what do i want to say it's you know i'm not the person who would you know who would run into the asylum and let everybody out right yeah i'm the person who would run into the asylum and you know put on gloves and hug everybody as long as they didn't (laughs) have arms (laughs) (laughs) uh well you know what i mean like uh emotional gloves okay because the you know
0: so do you think that's something that you've developed recently after becoming a mother? Do you feel more empathetic towards the world, or have you always had these sort of viewpoints?
1: I've sort of always had this viewpoint, and I mean you could you could trace it back to a lot of different things, but I mostly chalk it up to my own personal experience, having having fostered and maintained and examined so many connections with so many human beings in my life. Thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of connections and micro connections with people. I've never seen it work the other way. I've only seen success on a, on a larger scale when it comes to people getting along better. And the general situation becoming more peaceful when you actually connect more with whoever your adversary may be and feel more compassion, lean in with more empathy because it's so incredibly disarming. Yeah. And, and, you, you've, and done often this you've done in real life, you've done this,
0: people have come up to you and yelled abuse at you, or uh, is, it, is it mostly on the internet, I don't know, do people ever come up and just sort of say the things that people say online to your face?
1: Uh, not very often, but I was a street performer for five years. Right. And being <laughs> a street performer for five years is like living on the internet with real life trolls. But this must <laughs> have been years ago
0: though. How many, When was this, 2000? Uh, I, w-
1: I was... I was a full-time street performer from like 1998 to 2003. And where was that? In Boston? Mostly in Boston. I traveled around, but mostly in Boston. Was it
0: singing or? It was a statue. You were one of those stills. I was one of those. You were one of those. Yeah. What did you dress as? A bride.
1: (laughs) I was all white. uh, uh, All white with a black wig and white gloves on a big white pedestal with white flowers, which I handed out to people who gave me money.
0: Okay. And what's the worst thing someone ever did to
1: you? Oh, uh, I had a lot of bad, I mean, someone once chucked an apple straight at me from 20 feet away. Uh, A crazy, insane, psychotic guy once grabbed me and tried to, uh, pull me off my pedestal. I had people yell the most obscene things at me constantly, you know marriage was as you, you were talking,
0: <laughs> well, you know, dressed as a bride is it, did you always want to get married? Cause you were talking earlier about oh, no. having an open marriage, which I didn't know about you.
1: Um, no, I was never really all that interested in marriage. You kind of dressing as a bride cause you were sort of being. The dress, the dress was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I found the dress in a vintage shop and I thought, great. It's 19 bucks. I'll paint sarcastic. myself white. You're
0: like, Oh yeah,
1: I'll be a, I'll be a bride. Well, and, and it's a very romantic image. <laughs> you know, everybody loves a virgin bride. <laughs> um, yeah, but I was—I'm—I was never a big fan of marriage. I'm still not the world's biggest marriage fan, okay. and I'm married. And you're married, yeah. Um, but it can, it's a, that's a nice diamond. Thanks. This was actually my great grandmother's. My oh, wow. mom gave it to Neil to give to me because he didn't have a ring. Aww. He sharpied a ring on me when he proposed. It was really <laughs> sweet. That's quite romantic. Um, but yeah, I. I think I mean to get back to the, um, the 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 empathy compassion thing. You know, there's a as a street performer, there's this amazing centeredness that you find after a while. You just become unfuckwithable because you've just <laughs> heard everything, you've seen everything, you've dealt with everything, and there's no one there to protect you. You're not in a gang. You're not in a posse. It's just you against the street, against yeah. all of humanity. And so I at least took it as a as a passageway into being incredibly open-hearted because it was almost like a weapon. And, you know, and around the same time, I was also a stripper, and I found the same thing was true, which is, you know, <clears throat> people expect you as a, as a stripper to be really hard-hearted and... Um, you know really cold yeah well cold and calculating and all about the money and i you know i loved that you could make a lot of money as a stripper but i was so fascinated by the human souls that walked through the door that i just wanted to hear everybody's stories and (laughs) sit there and listen to their pain and you know i was the stripper that cared
0: (laughs) I didn't Wait, make
1: nearly as much money as the other strippers, but I had a great time. I have
0: so many questions <laughs> to ask because this is the podcast where I can ask questions about things that I wouldn't normally get to ask people questions Fire about. Away. And I wanted to ask you so much about your marriage, but now I want to ask you so much about being a stripper. Like, when did you decide I want to be a stripper? When was the first kind of how do you even find out how do you even know that you have it in you do you have to go to like training lessons to no. learn how to do things on the pole or
1: no being a stripper is a lot like being a living statue you just decide one day that you're going to do it <laughs> and you do it um and no one holds your hand and and shows you the ropes you can't intern do you just go to the <laughs> local
0: establishment and you're like yeah. hi sign me up
1: absolutely really? you go upstairs and you talk to billy and you say <laughs> i'm amanda can i strip and they they sign you up for Thursday night. Really? Yeah.
0: I once went to a strip club
1: in Austin. and- Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. That's a pretty good place to go to a strip club. During South by
0: Southwest, got taken by my oh, music industry. So it's industry probably a really
1: fun loving, <laughs> ha- slap happy strip club. It was
0: pretty fun. Yeah. I got motorboated. Nice. Yeah. How was it? It was wonderful. See? <laughs> Did you, did, what, I mean, what, did you kind of, because it seemed like a thing that it, they did to all the girls, because all the guys were just putting money down, yeah. and they'd just do a little sexy dance. And then I put like a, you know, a single or whatever it is on the, on the thing, and they came over and like rubbed their boobs in my face. You're a woman. Did, is, did you usually do more of an act for ladies? Or? N-
1: I mean, the strip club that I worked in was called The Glass Slipper. It was in downtown Boston <laughs> in, the, in the, what was left of the combat zone. And I wanted to work there because you got to pick your own music. It was the only strip club in the area where you could pick your own music, because there was no way that I was going to go to one of the places on Route One where it was like boof, 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 stuff. <laughs> so, so, you and this was back in like the late '90s, early 2000s. So you showed up with a pile of CDs, Limp with tape on the front, <laughs> with notes for the DJ saying track seven on this CD and then track five on this CD. And so I was stripping to Nick Cave and PJ Harvey oh, wow. and Radiohead, um, <laughs> while all these other girls were stripping to Ludacris, and it was quite an eclectic. Just see you bringing
0: the mood down with some OK computer.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I loved it though. I found it very inspiring. Um, and you actually, so the strip club that I worked at, you you did two things. There were two parts of the job. One was every hour or so on rotation, you would get on the stage with the pole and there was a bar separating the counter from the stage and you would do three songs Mm -hmm. and people would chuck money at you and, you know, you would do whatever it is that you did. And this was a full nude strip club, not a titty bar. Um, And then the rest of the time is where you actually made your money and you actually made your money by going and mixing as it was called on the floor sitting down with men um and that's not sexist because in my years there i had never once had a female client um and in order to be seated with one of the strippers you had to buy them a drink the drinks started at 35 dollars and went up to 1500 $1,500? $1, $1,500 for a bottle of their best champagne. Wow. And the bartender's job, and this is all just like amazing theater, the bartender's job was to upsell the guy on what kind of drink so that he wouldn't look or feel cheap in front of his date. Right. The stripper. And so, <laughs> you know, this like you could get a split, which is basically a, a cup of rum and coke or whatever, and... Um, and then, you know, 12 minutes later, the bartender would come around and say, do you want to buy her another drink? And if you didn't get bought another drink, you left. Ooh. And so basically it was about selling female company. Oh, and that's the quite tr- sad, isn't it? it? Oh my God, it was insanely <sighs> sad. And, you know, and the cost of buying female company, was like, whatever, two, three hundred bucks an hour. And then the stripper got a 15% cut on the drink. Wow. And so the bartender had a huge list behind the bar. She kept track of all of your drinks. A good night is if you got bought two or three bottles of $250 champagne, which meant that you would sit and chat with this guy for half an hour, 45 minutes, and then you'd move along. And your next question should be, how the fuck did you drink six bottles of champagne? Oh, my
0: next question in was: a night. Did you not get the one thousand five hundred
1: dollar one? Occasionally,
0: really, yeah, on a good
1: night. But do the math. Yeah, okay. Fifteen percent of a fifteen thousand, fifteen hundred dollar bottle is not actually that much money. Yeah. On a good night, you'd 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 leave with four or five hundred bucks. On a bad night, you'd leave with a couple of hundred.
0: So how did you manage to drink so much?
1: There was an amazing set. Of slate-of-hand stripper theater tricks <laughs> that all of the girls used to make it appear that they were drinking because even if you were a drinker and a lush like I was there was no way <laughs> that you could keep up with the demand of splitting six bottles of champagne with six different men right, on its yeah. five-hour shift so a lot of it was being in cahoots with the bartender and when the guy had his back turned, she would swap out your champagne for ginger ale or you would dump your champagne into the champagne bucket and she would refill it. Or you could always order a drink that was any kind of drink and she would bring you a version, but that was all right. it was all a lie. Wow. It was amazing. <laughs> it was such a racket. Um, and, you know, and also a lot of these, there were basically two kinds of strippers at the club. There was, I love that we started on empathy and compassion. This whole podcast is gonna be about stripping. No, no, but it's not. We're but gonna, it all
0: connects. I've got, I've got, lots, back right I've got right. lots of questions about giving
1: birth as well. Oh my God. I want
0: to know um, all the details they don't tell you.
1: So a lot, a lot of the girls at the, at the club were like professional strippers who were moms with three kids who had husbands, whose husbands would come and pick them up at the club. And these were women who were just pro strippers who knew how to work it who knew how to dance on stage, who knew how to mix with the crowd, who knew how to always leave with 800 bucks in their pocket. And then there were the crazy college girls on Coke who had just wandered in there because they needed to pay student loans and they were off their tits on Coke right. and drunk every night.
0: Oh, so I And then there me- was me. I thought me. you meant crazy, <laughs> I thought you meant they were like in the crowd. But no, they were were stripping. No, I mean,
1: women almost never came into this club. And the thing is, like, the strip club that you saw in Austin was probably a way more fun-loving, like, destination, let's go out and have some laughs. Yeah. This strip club was a destination for lonely men, almost all of whom were probably married. They, you know, many of them had really poor social skills and it was their only way of having some kind of intimacy Mm. maybe not even with a woman but with anyone that's really sad but it also felt in a way like i loved that i got to do that job because i would look at a lot of the other strippers who were kind of terrible conversation
0: who never (laughs) made eye
1: contact who were just sort of there looking at their watches waiting for this moment to be over and I just dug in and I was like, tell me more about that, Steve, because that sounds really, really difficult. And Steve would be like, oh, my God. But
0: you didn't find this emotionally draining. because I, <laughs> oh, I found you, it totally emotionally draining, right. but I still loved it. <laughs> I was going to say, what did you get out of it? Were you, were you at a time where you were kind of in on the chats? You were like, okay, I'd, actually, I'm quite lonely in Boston as well. I, I need to chat to someone.
1: Uh, well, as I have found on the Internet and with, my fans and a lot of random friends, sometimes intimacy with a stranger can be the most profound kind of intimacy because it's got no baggage.
0: Yeah. So you could just make things up. You could do whatever. You could spill everything and then I not didn't, worry about
1: it. Oh, I didn't even make things up. I didn't need to make things up. My life was interesting enough. Right. Uh, but yeah, there was no sense of commitment. And as a slight commitment phobe, uh, <laughs> with a real addiction to intimacy, some of those moments were truly beautiful.
0: Can I ask you about your open marriage, or did you say that at the start and now you don't, you actually regret saying it?
1: Or I don't, I have, I have no regrets. no regrets,
0: you know, because I was once in an open relationship and it didn't go very well. What happened? Uh, it, it uh, she, she, she started sleeping with someone else and they fell in love and then they were together for three years, it didn't that'll, go so well for me.
1: Yeah, that'll end, that'll yeah. end an open relationship. <laughs> Uh,
0: is there, are there rules? Are there like, yeah,
1: there are rules.
0: How do you even, how do we even, how do you even get to the point where you're like, cause I mean, for us, she was in a band and I was just, that like, was your, was like that was gent- your
1: first mistake.
0: Yeah, it was, it? <laughs>
1: She was a it's singer. All, it's all over there.
0: <laughs> and she was just like, I, you know, I'm like young and I want to like, I'm on tour and I'm meeting all these people. I want to like experiment. And I was like, Hey, cool. I just got like a radio show and like, I'm meeting people too, so we can totally do that. But I think secretly I was just like, I only have eyes for you. Mm. I think I just sort of went along with it.
1: Yeah. Uh, I guess it depends how committed the relationship is to begin with. Right. Right. So the stronger the roots of the relationship are...
0: So is it something that you decided later on?
1: No. No. It was a condition of our relationship. Who imposed? We both did. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Although that's not totally fair to say because i the relationship that i came out of before neil um he he was a strict monogamist and i was enough in love that i thought you know i'm in my i'm i'm in my early 30s i have done a lot of slutting around i'm really in love i can do this i i can be done with sleeping with everyone i want to that's fine so I had gotten to that turning point, but the, I mean, the conversation came up pretty fast because wow. Neil and I, when we first met and started dating, we talked about everything and he was like, I'm totally game to let you sleep with whoever you want with. And I was like, great, I'm game for that too. Let's definitely do that. And, uh, and to, to be fair to, well, or to be totally honest, we, um, we agreed to shut down Uh, The openness of our relationship until further notice at least when I got pregnant. Yeah, because it was too complicated and It's been complicated right Uh, being in a open marriage or a polygamous relationship You might think that it would make the relationship easier simpler. It actually means that you need to maintain a stronger relationship, a more communicative relationship. It it needs to be, it needs to be so grounded to weather the energy of other sexual partners that if you're not really ready to do that work, I wouldn't recommend it.
0: I mean, do you talk about it? Do you like, hey darling, what did you do last night? Oh,
1: I just went and yeah, fucked some guy. Yeah, except <laughs> that that doesn't happen very often, and especially as we've gotten, Older, and we've experimented with what works and what doesn't work and what drives the other one into a jealous rage. Right. We've had to impose sort of more boundaries and rules and understandings because fundamentally we love each other and we are a primary relationship. And so anything that is going to threaten Our marriage has to go yeah and plenty of those things have happened and anytime something comes in to threaten our marriage whether it's um, you know a a breaking of trust or a person who's slightly too crazy or this that or the other thing it's difficult but we have to sit there and talk about it sort it and deal with it and you know and we deal with that the same way people in quote-unquote more normal monogamous marriages have to deal with all the shit they have to deal with which is if you did make out with someone drunkenly at a party is that the end of your marriage right um, yeah and so a lot of it is the same set of issues you just kind of stick a different frame around it
0: yeah my, mine's more like did you watch one episode on netflix without me but you bitch i know damn you <laughs> um, Wow. that because I remember like back in like the 80s when I was growing up, there was this thing where people who were in like open relationships or swingers used to have like grass out, a certain type of grass outside their houses. <laughs> and that was like the like British way that you if someone had this certain kind of like long grass outside their house. then Yeah, it was sort of like having swingers. a turquoise
1: handkerchief sticking out of your back left pocket in San Francisco <laughs> in the 70s.
0: Um, how do you how do you broach in conversation? How do you drop it into conversation when you're chatting to someone? Or do most people know? Is it just is it just me that wasn't aware? Why would I need to? I mean, I think... Well, you have like a wedding ring and an engagement ring on, and they're, it's a big diamond.
1: Yeah. Well, people... but I'm, I'm not generally... I'm not like a predator. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not out there every night in bars looking for people to shag, and neither is Neil. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is now like... Neil's in his 50s. I'm in my 40s neither of us are all that into like super casual sex so and neither of us are into sleeping with random crazy people so like you know a lot of this happens in a way more boring adult way than you know going into a swinging bar and like (laughs) waving my waving my particular grass in the air um but you know things like that do come up in conversation, and it, like it, it's since it, you know since it's been like a number of years now since I've slept with anyone but Neil, I can't even remember. I'm so like <laughs> focused right now on my child and stuff. But well, tell I, me, tell me about motherhood instead.
0: Tell me about the things that people don't tell. Way you to
1: sexier. Because I don't, to I talk don't about think babies. I'm ever gonna
0: have a, a, a baby. I think I, if anything, I'll probably adopt. Mm. And so in my mind, part of me is like am I missing out on this moment that people talk about? It's like people talk about how their lives changed the moment they first hold their child and that you feel this like instant connection. And I'm, I'm always like, is that something that I'll regret in later life? Not having had. No, no,
1: you won't. Okay. Does it just pass? I'm fixing it for you right now.
0: No, tell me the (laughs)
1: truth. The truth is, uh, for me. Yeah. Because that's all I can tell you. Uh, I had so many people, especially when I was pregnant, saying, Oh my God, I had this life changing cosmic moment the minute I looked into my baby's eyes for the first time, and it's unlike anything you've ever felt, and it's going to completely change you as a, as a human being, and da, da 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 And I did not find that to be true. Uh, which is not. Which were is you just not,
0: really tired? Were you sleepy?
1: It all felt really natural but it did not feel overwhelming, and it didn't feel like uh, I was massively, profoundly changed as a person. It could be that that's because I didn't have a baby until I was 39, and I had already gone through a lot. So did
0: you think you were never gonna have children?
1: I was pretty ambivalent about it. Right. Um, And...
0: I mean, did you kind of go through sort of any kind of IVF or anything like that?
1: No, I, I got pregnant really, really easily. Wow. Uh, and had before and had had several abortions. And I really struggled pretty much from the time I hit 35 to the time I had Ash, like struggled on a daily crazy making basis about whether or not to have a child and so you were like we're gonna do this now we're gonna have a baby well at the point where we did yeah like ping there it is pretty much (laughs) um but not not before really walking through a couple of hellfires of indecision right and and that is not totally uncommon and the same way you encountered all these people who said oh my god you know, I always knew I wanted to be a mom or whatever. Like, yeah. the, the people who looked at their children and had that feeling. And there were they there posted
0: 27,000 photos of them on Instagram.
1: Right. <laughs> well, and, and there are also people out there who, you know, always knew they wanted to have a baby. Always knew, always knew. It was never a question, you know, from day one, I'm going to be a mom, I'm going to give birth. And I never felt that way. I had that kind of certainty about being an artist. I never had that kind of certainty about being a mother. And maybe you only get one. Um, or you but know... But you,
0: you, you, you've you, made a lot of music. You've made a lot of of art. Maybe thing like, maybe it's the need to create. Maybe that's something that people feel that people who aren't as artistic as you, who, who don't, you know, aren't that, they're creating things in the kind of physical sense, but well it is a physical sense isn't it to create a baby maybe that's you know their
1: their sort of they occupy a similar space yeah it's creative work it really is literally creative and intellectually creative both making a song making an album doing a tour connecting with fans doing the job that i do and giving birth and figuring out how to connect with and take care of a child a lot of it feels like the same job Mm. same skill (laughs) set similar (laughs) skill set um, but one thing that I actually found really distressing about all the things that I went through uh, the like crazy indecision of whether or not to have a child, going through abortion, go, you know, talking with lots and lots of women who were going through abortions, going through miscarriages going through uh, losing children in stillbirth, going through all of the bizarre swamp of baby having or baby not having. It's so totally underground. There's just so little open discourse about what so many women are going through all the time. Like, if you look around you on the tube, chances are one of... The women in the tube is dealing with some kind of insane baby problem, whether it's a miscarriage or an abortion or a, you know, a, an, an accidental pregnancy or whatever. There's so much of it, and it's think, such a shameful why, why topic. Why do you
0: think that people? Why do you think it's so shameful? Why do you think that people can't talk about it? I mean, especially in the states and right here in the UK, where you know we're we, we still don't have a government at the time of recording, but it looks like the conservatives are going to do do a deal with the DUP who won't let you have an abortion in Northern Ireland. You can't get an abortion in Northern Ireland. I think it's illegal, actually.
1: It's it's fucked up. Yeah. As if on cue. The <laughs> baby's back. I, th- I just think there's so much cultural baggage and women are so disempowered when it comes to speaking about their real experiences. And when I openly talked about um, having an abortion and... I found myself in pockets of conversation with tons of women. I couldn't believe how many women were going through so many things that they felt that they couldn't even talk about with their friends. Really? Really. Was this in the States mostly? In the States and in the UK and in Australia, everywhere. And it just made me want to scream because here we all are going through these things for real. All of these, all of these uh, crazy, visceral, complicated, complicating uh, experiences. And we can't discuss them out, you know, even sometimes with our partners. So um,
0: you did, your, your first abortion, mm-hmm. how how I was how 17. Wow.
1: I was 17, in love with my boyfriend Uh, and accidentally pregnant right and I was lucky enough that I had a really understanding family because I could go to my mom
0: did you talk to your boyfriend about it as well yeah
1: and my mom and my boyfriend took me to Planned Parenthood and I, I I struggled the way you would always struggle having an abortion but I wasn't gonna leave high school and have a baby
0: yeah of course and there, was it was because I mean over here when we think of us kind of Planned Parenthood clinics you you think of the protesters outside with the signs was, was, was that sort of stuff there when you had when you're 17 and you had to go in
1: yeah and it was awful I had to walk through a group of women telling me that I was a murderer oh, it was really uh incredibly painful
0: did it affect you? I mean, did did it affect you for years, years after that? Or or was it sort of something that you It made me
1: angry at those women. And mostly it made me furious on behalf of the women going in for abortions who weren't with their boyfriends and mothers, who had to go in alone and face that kind of, uh, that kind of anger and that kind of inhumanity. Because that's when a woman is at her most vulnerable. It's so emotional having an abortion and you're so fragile. Yeah. It's when you need the most support. And it uh, it infuriates me that we're taking such poor care of each other in that regard. Uh, and it makes me really happy that there are organizations who actually who deal with that, who are basically abortion doulas and will accompany, uh, you know, single women or women who can't tell their boyfriends or women who are rape victims can't tell their families whatever there's so many cases and in so many situations and, 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 help and there are women who take those women to Planned Parenthoods just so they have someone with them
0: I suppose that that kind of goes back to our first topic of conversation which is empathy totally and it's screaming at people in the face because you don't agree with them just really makes the situation a lot worse. Not
1: working. It's not
0: working. <laughs> Can I give you a hug? Because I feel oh, really bad.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate much, that hug. Uh,
0: for talking to me. You're welcome. This has been a. We went
1: everywhere. We really did. We went to the strip club. We went to the abortion <laughs> clinic. I'm gonna adopt a child.
0: I really hope you do. I mean, right now one cat's enough, but.
1: A cat, a cats are almost harder, because they don't grow up. To perpetually take care of them yeah they're in the house forever
0: oh pancake they never
1: leave is that your cat
0: yeah um yeah thank you thank you it was a great talk thank you to amanda for being so open and engaging i think that interview will stay with me for a very long time You've been listening to Talk The Line. I'm Jen Long. Original music by Seams. Please subscribe for more. There is a new one every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter at Talk The Line. And if you like us, please leave us a review. It really helps other people find the podcast. See you next week.